One of our board members asked for a leave of absence from the board. He's been underperforming for quite some time anyway, and given some challenging issues in his life, he needs to take a temporary step back. Is it acceptable to grant him a leave of absence, or is there another course of action we should be considering? I think this is an issue that comes up quite often for boards, and the rule of thumb I advise on is do not grant a leave of absence. I mean, nor would I put it in your bylaws. If you think about it, your fiduciary duties and responsibilities, they can't just be suspended because you're not showing up to meetings or not able to be present. Um, That means you're still a board member. You're still you know, part of the group that is making decisions without your voice there. And so I think you're actually putting the individual and just the organization, there's, I don't know, risk is probably too strong a word, but you're just putting people not in the best situation. And so um, someone who's not informed or and who's not a part of the decision making is still yet responsible for the decisions being made. And so I think the kind way to handle this, and, you know, you already said the person was kind of flaky and not, you know, not holding their own anyway. So I think I would just encourage them say, listen, we're not, you know, in a position, we don't offer leaves of absence to board members because of the fiduciary responsibility. But you certainly, why don't, you know, we certainly can open up your seat. You can resign for now and when you're ready and you're past this time. And of course, we always want you to be a friend of the organization. So you'll stay, you know, we'll, we'll stay connected in all the other ways we stay connected with you about what we're doing. But um, we really need to make sure we have active, engaged board members who are fulfilling their fiduciary duty. So, so that's what I would actually advise on something like this. And then you can, you know, ask, have the person put up for renomination. You can invite them and say, when you're done, come back. And then, but again, make them know it's not just, hey, I've come back. So put me on the board because then maybe you filled the board if you have, you know, if your bylaws say you have nine open board seats and, um, or, you know, nine board seats and you end up filling, this board member leaves, but you end up filling their seat, you have to be aware that you may not, you may not be able to take them back right when they are, are wanting to. And so it's a process, right? So just like resignation is a process, so is renomination a process. And so I think just being honest about it alleviates a lot of miscommunication, gray area, and you don't set this precedent where now you start to have all the boards, you know, many board members start asking for leaves of absence because they're going to have a busy period at work for three months or whatever it is, right? Like it can really get carried away when you offer it to one. Plus it's just, I don't, I don't think it's in your best interest. Um, so that, that'd be my, my thoughts on it. Anything different or no, nuanced to add? Totally Andy? agree. I, I don't think a leave of absence makes sense for all the reasons that you said. Like, you don't, you're, you're right. You're still on the board. You can't not be on the board and be on the board at the same time. It's not a thing. Um, I think one place where, and this kind of dovetails into a conversation we just had a little while ago um, about bylaws. And so one of the reasons you might want to consider having a little bit of flexibility in your bylaws is that if you drop this board member, and then they decide they want to re-engage with you. If your bylaws don't say we have nine board members and your bylaws instead say we have more than five board members, right? You can just add him when he comes back and he's ready. You exactly. just put him right back on the board. And so there's no, it's not like his spot is taken. It's not like he's going to be left out, especially if it's somebody that you, I mean, it sounds like this is a person that you want engaged. 
This is somebody that you will miss when they're not there for whatever reason. So don't hamstring yourself by like, you know, making it hard for that person to come back. Um, but yeah, don't, don't, don't allow leaves of absence. That's just a, that's a recipe for disaster (laughs) right there. But I also think this is an opportunity for the organization since they said the board member's been underperforming for quite some time anyway. And maybe it's because of this issue, this challenging issue they're facing. But I also go, it's a great opportunity when this happens to not just leave it that they can just pop back on. It's like, oh, I'm going to pop on and off of the board, right? It's it's like getting people to understand it's a process. So certainly we will put your name up for nomination again. And guess what? Then that board needs to, who remembers this person's history and maybe that they weren't, you know, pulling their weight, the board may choose not to. It, you don't just automatically get to call the shots. And I think sometimes people think that with boards, board seats, like I'm the one in control and I get to be the master of it all. And no, that is not the case. <laughs> Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything. The podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. We are your go to podcast resource for all things nonprofit. I'm Stacy Wedding, and I am thrilled to be here with my co host extraordinaire, Andy Shurick. How's it going, Andy? It's pretty good. I, I'm waiting for the weather to get cooler. It has not yet, which is depressing, but I'm waiting. <laughs> Andy and I were both complaining because, and I shouldn't complain given what his what temps he's facing. What is it, 105, Andy? It's, it's 103 today, and okay. the day we're taping this um, two weeks before Halloween, so it, it shouldn't be this hot. No, and I was complaining because we're 93 in Las Vegas today. And yeah, I'm ready for fall. So for sure. Oh, well, anyway, we are so jazzed. You are joining us and hopefully you're experiencing fall in whatever part of the world you're in, (laughs) unlike us. And we're going to just live vicariously through you. Uh, As always, we love your questions and we welcome them. So you can always just click that, ask a question button on our website, nonprofiteverything.com. You can track Andy and me down on any of the social podcasts or go to, um, or not social podcasts, social platforms. And you can also find us, uh, you know, gosh, in all the ways. I Sadly, I'm too findable on the internet. And some days I just want to go undercover. Can you relate to that at all, Andy? Like just hide, <laughs> just hide from the world. Nobody yeah. can reach me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, we hope you enjoy this episode. And look forward to seeing your questions. Thank you. Hey, y'all. I heard that a nonprofit that offers a Donate Now button on its website must be registered for charitable solicitations in every state to avoid penalties. Assuming that an organization is registered in every state in which it operates and has an IRS letter of determination, does it need to be registered before accepting a donation from someone in another state if that state requires registration for charitable solicitations? And we love this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for the, the love. We love 
We love the love. Yeah, so do. thank you. Thank you. Andy, do you want to, do you want to tackle this one? Yeah, this one's tough. And part of the reason is because every state has different rules. This is not a federal law. It's state by state. And every state actually interprets this different as well. So you can have, and so the, you know, the, the summary of the question again is if I put a donate now button on my website, the theory is that's available for everyone in the whole world. You know, the internet is a, a, a worldwide thing. I believe they've called it the World Wide Web at one point, right? <laughs> it's a worldwide thing where anybody can access it. And so if you've got a donate now button, does that constitute a solicitation in every single municipality around the entire world? Right. That's the question. And depending on the state attorney general for the state that's got the charitable solicitation registration requirements, like sometimes they say, yes, absolutely. You need to be registered. If you've got a donate now button and somebody from Indiana, and I'm just picking Indiana out of a hat, if somebody from Indiana clicks it, you need to be registered for charitable solicitation registration statements in whatever in, in Indiana now. Right. Um, other states are less likely to go after you. I think this is one of those ones where the the way the statutes are written are different in every state. Um but you do have a, a level of plausible deniability that if somebody, if you're not really going after donors in every state, if you don't do direct mail in every state, if you do not do events in every state, if you don't have any kind of operations in every state, you have plausible deniability that we're, you know, we're not really in Indiana. And I don't know why we got a donation from Indiana because we're not really soliciting in Indiana, like the buttons there. But that doesn't mean that like we're trying to get money from Indiana um, I don't know that any state attorney generals have gone after any nonprofits for a donate now button unless they have a significant presence in the state. And what significant presence in this case means is, are you sending direct mail there? Because if direct mail is going there, 100% you need a charitable solicitation registration statement, right? Um, depending on who you are as a nonprofit, you may choose to register everywhere. And for a while, and I'm not sure it's still active, for a while, the Nash, I can't remember the acronym, but it's basically the organization of state charity officials. Stacy looks like she knows the acronym. Yes, it is. So the multi-state registration and filing portal, the National Association of State Charities Officials, and the National Association of Attorneys General started development of a multi-state registration and filing portal. If that isn't a mouthful, I don't know what is, <laughs> but hopefully you caught all that. So we'll put a link. I think they stopped development of that in like 1999. I don't know that that's been yeah. updated more recently. So you used to be able to From pay, what I could tell yeah. online, Andy, like I did some research on this question just to see if I, I found some info that looked like this uniform registration statement, URS, um, if someone just wanted to, you know, search for that. Um, it looked like it was current as of sort of 20, I think it was like 2016 or something. So it doesn't feel like it's actively kept up, but sure makes life easier. Sorry to interrupt you, but just wanted to chime in there. No, no. Yeah, that's 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 exactly what I was trying to remember, too. So thank you. But the, the there actually used to be a way that you could pay one fee and then you would get registered in all the states. They were trying to come up with a way like if you filled out this form and you paid $750, you would automatically be registered in all 50 states. Right. I think that finally stopped like it wasn't they weren't able to do that, although there may be organizations that can do that for you. Um, I think like you need to look at 
sort of what your operations are and if you think it's risky enough, if you really are raising enough money in each state to have to do the registration statement, like how much does it cost? The problem with a registration statement in some states, like in Nevada, it's super easy. It's like when you you just push a button, you sign it, you write the thing, you put a link to your 990 and you're done. It's the easiest thing. In other states, you have, like California, you have ongoing compliance requirements. Like when you file your 990 every year, you have to also send a copy of the 990 to the state of California. So there's, as you register in these different states, you you need to then start keeping track of all of the other requirements that go along with the registration because it can get it can become kind of a pain. And if you're really just getting like the occasional random donation from Indiana, it might not be worth your time. And the state, I'm just telling you, you can call me if this is wrong. The state attorney general of Indiana isn't going to come after you because Aunt Margaret sent $25 to your annual fund. And I think from all the research and literature I saw on this uh, related to this question, there were sort of a handful of key triggers just to reinforce what you said. Actively solicits. The word actively solicits, I think, is a big distinguisher here because you're possibly soliciting with the donate now button. But the difference is when you're direct doing a direct mail campaign, you're actively soliciting, right? So I think there's just an example, kind of a concrete example of that. Um, the other thing that that came up when I researched it was that if your nonprofit has a physical presence, employees, or conducts any kind of significant activities in the state, that usually, you know, requires registration for charitable, you know, to register for the charitable solicitations there. And it just, all in all, it feels, I know I shouldn't be guiding people to take the risk, but if you truly are just like having a donate now button, I, to your point, Andy, I think the risk is really low. And at some point, there comes this, like, you've got to weigh it, right? It's worth the time. Or is it, gosh, shoot, someone called us on it, and maybe we didn't know, or maybe we did know, and oops, we'll pay the fees and penalty fees. It stinks. But it's just, it's kind of like at some point, it is hard, and these things change constantly. So I just, I feel like... I feel like it's hard from what I've seen, the penalties for non-compliance, not registering in states where you're actively solicitating is usually like fines or restrictions on your fundraising activities is usually what comes down from what I saw in some of my research. But um, I kind of feel like the way this question was asked, I feel like you're going to be safe if it's just that you have a donate now button. I mean, look at every single charity out there that has a donate now button. I mean, you can make this case for all of them. And then, and you know, if I was an, if I was your attorney and you got called on, I'd be like, oh, so what about all these others? I, like, I mean, it's, I don't know, like, I, I feel like that's overkill. So I think it's the actively solicits or that sort of physical presence in the state yeah. that would be my litmus test. And, and some of them have dollar amount limits too. So it's less than $500. It doesn't trigger it. Um, I think the the trigger with actively soliciting is if somebody gives you a donation and now you know they're in Indiana, like, are they still going to be on your mailing, your email mailing solicitation list? So if you send them, uh, oh, it's coming around to the Thanksgiving time, maybe you want to send us $50, that's solicitation. And if you're doing that in a different state, even if they came through your Donate Now button, then you're actively soliciting, then I would consider paying for the registration statement or deciding just to, you know, occasionally prune your list so that you're not sending 
solicitations to states that you really don't intend to solicit to. But the presence of the donate now button, I think is a very, um, I have, I mean, to date, I'm, I'm not aware of anybody being hit because of that donation now button. We received some unrestricted grant money and our marketing folks want to buy a really fancy multiple video screen setup for our volunteer space. I feel like this will seem too fancy for our volunteers who think we're wasting money on stuff like this. How do I convince them that our money is better spent on our mission? I'm really curious about this question because are your volunteers Anyway, I don't know. I just have a lot of things running through my mind. Like, are your volunteers really scrutinizing that carefully? And I understand volunteers oftentimes are donors or become donors. But I guess I would say, first and foremost, I'm curious, what will the video screens be used for? Like, what's the purpose of them? If it's just like, hey, we get to have entertainment at the office, I I get it. But like, if there's if there's actually intention, which I'm guessing there's a reason for this, that's probably going to end up saving the organization time, money, or other costs that maybe you're having to do an outsource, then I feel like this becomes a not, it's an investment, right? It's an investment in your infrastructure, just like any other investment you would make. Um, It's, it's an indirect cost, perhaps, like it's not something that that you have to do. And I guess I also feel like you don't, you shouldn't feel the need to have to like justify almost like you're guilty of it. If it makes you feel better, then you could certainly say, you know, you could put even like a little, you could say, Hey, volunteers, look at this great. Like we got these videos, you know, these video screens and here's what that's going to allow us to do. Like whatever, like you could do that or you could, have a cute little like te- like uh, placard or something that I've seen people do, like, thank you to XYZ Funder for making our video screens a reality, whatever. I mean, it's unrestricted. So like, there's no restriction. So you get to use it. And theoretically, I'm assuming these were bought with the intention of somehow furthering what your organization's work is or mission or making you more efficient. So it's absolutely helping your bottom line and mission. It's just not maybe a direct, like we're directly giving you programs or services. We're giving to the thing that might help us market, you know, programs and services. So I just think getting comfortable that these are okay and acceptable. You've got to be comfortable with that yourself. And then if you feel like there's potential pushback, then you employ one of those other strategies I mentioned perhaps. And and maybe it's always an ongoing effort. I know people like you'll hear organizations that want to balance between like, oh, we don't want to have a marketing deck that looks too fancy or a video that looks too polished because donors are going to question whether we spent all our money on that. So, I mean, you can tell the story. Like, we are so grateful for this great grant we got that was unrestricted that's allowing us to invest in some of these things that are going to help us be an even stronger organization. So, I I think it's all, it's the way it's messaged. It's the way you believe that this, you've got to believe yourself that this was a worthwhile investment. Because if the doubt lies with you, others will feel that and sense that. And then that that creates a ripple effect. So I don't know. That's my gut reaction to this. Andy, any any differences or thoughts? Uh, you know, I think this is, I think this is a sort of another variation of that weird Puritan theme that keeps coming through that we keep hearing about from nonprofits, right? 
that you can't be yeah. successful. You can't look like, you know, the building can't be fancy. It can't be, it can't look nice because then donors will instantly think that, well, they're clearly spending money on the wrong things. And I think that this is something that we've backed ourselves into because it's not necessarily true. So when you look at it from a donor's perspective, and this is, this is, I think the, the way to like, and I actually kind of disagree, disagree with the person answering the question, like, how do I convince them that our money is better spent on the mission? Like, I think you need to, you need to think about the way donors perceive you first before you decide that that's what you want to try to convince the marketing team to do. So if I have money, like imagine, I know, I know this is hard for a nonprofit employee to think of, but imagine you have a lot of money <laughs> and you're trying to decide you, you care about a particular cause and you're trying to solve this social issue. And so you're going to pick between a couple of different people that you think are working in this space, right? And you have somebody that like you trust them and, but they always kind of look run down and it feels like they're just kind of working on a shoestring and like, it just, it just doesn't feel like the building's kind of dilapidated. You have to get buzzed in. It's just like, feels gross. And then there's another one that you think they're doing a pretty good job and the building's really fancy and they seem to, you know, they seem to be know what they're doing and, you know, they get a lot of donations and they get a lot of press and people like going there to volunteer because, you know, you don't feel like you're going to get murdered in the parking lot, right? So if you're a donor and you're looking at those two organizations, there's a reasonable chance they're going to pick the one that looks more successful because the one that looks more successful, even if you're like intellectually, you're like, well, they must be spending a larger percentage on keeping the building nice than they are on the mission. Well, that's a different thing than are they actually successful enough to raise money to work in the long term and to actually solve their mission? I think donors are really considering like how you look, how fun it is to go there, how how successful you appear, because a successful organization, one that's well run, is going to look nice. It's going to be painted. The roof isn't going to be caving in because they're capable of planning long term. They're capable of doing all the things they need to do to keep the lights on. And they're not in this constant emergency mentality. You know, we see this and this is always as soon as every time I get a direct mail piece or hear some sort of plea from a nonprofit that like, oh, God, the roof is falling, that the whole place is caving in and we need emergency donations to be able to deal with this crisis, right? My first thought is like, where have you been the last 10 years? Like you need to be planning for things, these things ahead of time. You need to, you need to have a strategic plan in place to, in order to go over those bumps when the bumps appear and you shouldn't be shocked by them. And so I think having a volunteer space that's nice, that may have volunteer, that may have a nice video screen set up, like, yeah, maybe you do need to put something on it that says, thanks to the XYZ Foundation for providing these, just if it makes you feel better. But the donate volunteers are never going to walk in and go, oh, I'm never going back there. It was too fancy. Right. And if they do, they're not good. They're not good volunteers. <laughs> Let them go volunteer someplace else because people recognize that if you're if you look successful and you behave in a successful way, they're going to have a better opinion of you than if you always look like, you know, like everything's called a ratty, but you know, well, we're at least we're trying, you know, we're all dressed in sackcloth, but you know, we're doing our best. <laughs> we're spending all the money on the mission, right? That's not, I don't, I think donors are smarter than that, to be honest. Yeah. And what struck me about this question in particular is the person who asked it mentioned, I feel like this will seem too fancy. So I feel like in some ways, I would ask the person, are you, are you bar, are you borrowing trouble, right? That old phrase, are you borrowing trouble where maybe it doesn't exist? And I understand that that cycle, that puritanical cycle Andy mentioned has existed for a long time, but I think we're starting to 
push past that. And in the reality is people wonder why the big, you know, fancy nonprofits keep getting bigger. It's because it's successful and someone goes that that is successful. Like, so I guess I would just say if this is sort of your own internal struggle or belief, like maybe you've got to do some of your own work around thinking through this because I do think that can come through and 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 not blaming you for feeling that way. I think we've had decades of these kinds of discussions that have led nonprofits to feel that way. So I'm not there's no shame in feeling that way. It's more about if you feel that way, others will sense you feel that way and that's and like then you come across defensive instead of like excited, like, look at this and we're so excited and we're so grateful for this foundation. So um, amen and cool on the video screen setup. Like, I want to see it. That sounds awesome. So <laughs> kudos on that. I think it for me, though, it also like dovetails with one of my favorite like nonprofit topics, which is why donors choose to give to you or choose not to give to you. Like what that, what helps them make that decision. And I think what we know from, from the research over time is what makes a donor give money to you is if they trust you, number one, and they think that you're actually of the different places that they can give money to, that they feel they have the best feeling when they give the money to you, right? And so figuring out how to, to, how to make those two things most important to that donor um, may not necessarily dovetail with the way you you perceive the organization once you're in it. Like if you're looking at if you're looking at the day to day financials and you see people are spending money on goofy things and it gets really annoying. Like I get that you might feel like like I'm I'm annoyed that you that guy just bought that really fancy chair, right? And so I'm going to say. Donors aren't going to like it if they find out that you bought that fancy chair, right? When I really feel like, how come you got a chair and I didn't get a chair? I didn't know I could get a chair, right? <laughs> so like making sure that you're you're separating your feelings about something like this, because this could me be like, well, how come, why does marketing get to spend money on cool video screens? But I've been asking for this one thing that's going to make things better for five years, right? And I haven't gotten it. it could, so you may be confusing that sort of internal organizational need with perception of donors, which is something completely different. And Stacey, now you've said, you said for all this time is like, you have to remember that we're not the target market. Like once you're in it, you lose all sense of what an external presence presence tells you. Like you don't know what the donors are thinking because you're immersed in it. You're like, you're soaking in it. You don't know what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping you can help me figure out where to start. I would like to begin a foundation and know the areas I want to take things, but legally, I don't know where to start and how to elevate a startup organization. So that's a, I mean, this is a really big question. Um, and I'm pretty sure like a lot of listeners just rolled their eyes too, right? <laughs> like the, I think the my big first question is like, I'm glad that you know what the areas that you want to take things but when you want to start a foundation, I, I need to know what that means in order to answer it appropriately, right? So so what a foundation is, so first of all, there's no legal definition of foundation. Foundation means nothing. Foundation is like the word grant. It just means money. So foundation means some sort of organization. There are foundations that are for-profits. There are foundations that are classified as private foundations, and there are foundations that are public charities. So those are three different um 
governance structures based on how you've put your organizing documents together and they're all used for different things. So, um, a private foundation is one that you've, you want to create, you have a bunch of money <laughs> and you just got a lot of money and you want to stash it somewhere and you want to kind of hide it from taxes. And then you want to give it away to nonprofits slowly over time. So that's kind of the use case for a private foundation. Um, if that's what you want, you probably need an attorney and an accountant to help you with that. That's not something you're probably going to want to do by yourself because there are some significant tax tax implications that really depend on how much money, what are you going to do? And you need to know that there are going to be taxes involved. Like if you're investing any of that money that you actually have to pay taxes on those investments, you have to distribute 5% or more of the corpus, although there are cheaty ways to get around that, which are gross and need to go away, but they exist. Um, but you're going to need help to do a private foundation hundred percent of the time. Um, the IRS is a good place to start too. They've got a lot of information about, you know, if you type in, do you go to the IRS webpage and type in, I want to start a foundation. They're going to get you to the foundation page and it'll give you all of the detail there. Um, whether you want to read that or not, that's up to you, but you're going to need an attorney and an account to help. Um, a, a public charity, which is what most nonprofits, when we say nonprofit, that's a lot of times what we mean. Um, which is one that has a charitable purpose. There's no owner. You can't make a profit. It has given back to the owners. You can reinvest it back in the business, but you can't actually pay it out to owners. That's what a public charity is for. You have to raise money from the community um, over a five-year time horizon. More than a third of the money needs to come from someplace other than you. So it's another big difference between a public charity and a private foundation. Um, so I think without more detail... I'd say it's kind of hard for Stacy and I to give you like specific to do's to figure out what to do next, because we're going to need to know what it is you mean when you say I want to start a foundation. I believe there are a couple of resources. I mean, there's obviously a ton of resources in the world of Internet land and ton and some reputable and more <laughs> reputable than others. We're the reputable but we certainly yeah. <laughs> we could put a couple of links to sites that might also be helpful for you. Uh, I echo everything Andy said. And I think sometimes people, I oftentimes hear the word foundation thrown around loosely without understanding the implications that Andy just mentioned about the type of entity. And uh, if you plan on getting most of your money to support the work you want to do through donations and fundraising, then you're probably talking about a 501c3 public charity. And some 501c3 public charities still add foundation at the end of their name. And that's perfectly acceptable, acceptable, because as Andy said, that's not, you know, it's just a word. It's just, but it can be confusing. And I can also say that the word foundation, the only other thing I'd caution you is thinking about if you're not truly intending to be a grant-making organization, I think the word foundation has a connotation that oftentimes leads people to thinking about you being as a grant maker versus that you're actually seeking out money from individuals. And so be careful about that too, because sometimes people are like, well, wait a minute, you're a foundation. Don't you give money away? And, and then there's a lot of people who don't know any of this. So, you know, who knows? But the point is, I think getting some clarity around it. And uh, there's a lot of good information and we'll put a couple links that, that might help you out on your journey.
So as we get closer to the end of the year, um, this becomes heavy fundraising season for a lot of nonprofits. This is where it gets serious. So thank you for taking the time out to listen to us today. Hopefully we allowed your blood pressure to go down just a little bit. So we're not worried about hitting the December numbers right now. Um, if you have questions for us, please go ahead and send those to us. There's lots of ways to do it. You can find us on any of the socials. The easiest way, to be honest, is to go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage. And there's a giant, I think it's yellow, a giant yellow button that you can click that says, ask a question. And that will send it directly to us. And we will put that right in the queue so that we can get your question um, turned around as quickly as possible. Um, we do this every two weeks. So join us again in two weeks and we'll see you then. Um, but in the meantime, go ahead and review us on any of the sites that you are receiving this podcast from, um, or you can go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage, the show notes, there'll be a link down there, which will give you easy access to different places you can review it. And you know what, we've given you enough action items, ask us a question, review it. Um, why not just give you one more? Thank you. Um, pat yourself on the back for doing a good job and realize that there's a lot of people out there doing exactly what you're doing and we're finding it all just as hard as you are. And pretty soon it'll be January and we can take a deep breath.